Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to you, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have a witness? You've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out to the porch and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels, they had committed murder in rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, 
crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had uh, scourged him to be crucified. Thank you, guys. You know, 25 years ago, our nation lived through what's been referred to as the trial of the century. A famous athlete's former wife had been murdered, and we watched it all play out in real time on television. An entire nation found themselves with bated breath watching as that trial ensued, where now that famous athlete and actor and so many other different things that he did throughout his popular career, as he found himself on the stand as the defendant being accused of murder. And on this side of the trial of the century, we found docudrama series have been made about it. There's many documentaries that also have been filmed, and a plethora of analytical articles have been written trying to understand not just what happened uh, in the O.J. Simpson trial, but really trying to understand why was culture so enamored with this? Why were we all so drawn into this? And some of them would suggest, well, maybe our intrigue, it might have been caused as a nation by the brutal nature of the crime. What happened was horrendous and vicious. It was evil. And so maybe that's what captured our attention. But that's something that seems to happen every day. It couldn't have just been that. Well, maybe it was our concern over the justice system, that it seems as though in our system that the haves went out at expense of the have-nots, that the system seems to bend towards the rich And so what will happen when the rich and the famous are on trial? And all of us began to look and to wonder if our suspicion was true that really justice, at least the form of justice you receive, is really based upon the kind of finance you have available to you. And so with bated breath, we watched. For others, maybe that they'd say that the actual reason that we found ourselves looking at that trial was because of our questions regarding racial bias when polls found a staggering divide between uh, the, what was classified as the white majority and every other minority group when it came to polls about what was going on in this trial. It could even be uh, questions that came to the surface about gender suppression that surfaced because of the brutal nature, not just of the murder, but the, the details that came to light about the broken romance and abusive relationship that predated it. It may have even been that the light shined on our love of celebrity or the light shined our direction on our naive willingness to trust people. And it left all of us somewhat rattled that we were troubled because we could have been the ones in this situation who seemingly got it all wrong. It's the trial of the century and it gripped a nation because I think we started to recognize that what we saw was we saw ourselves We saw our society, we saw our culture being exposed and on trial before our very eyes. We were on trial as a nation, it felt like, and that's what drew our attention there. It's, I think, our country's current infatuation with Johnny Depp and his ex-wives. Trial over their relationship, their toxic relationship that's playing out before your eyes if you're looking that direction. And it seems like many in our nation are looking that direction. Yes, because they love Jack Sparrow, as we all do. But also because this cultural moment makes us pause for a moment and remember that domestic violence and abuse are are something that shouldn't be tolerated. And this is on the heels of a Me Too movement that brought things to life where women should be 
should be honored for the fact that they stood up to their abusers and were willing to blow the whistle. But now we're rethinking that maybe the scope of domestic violence and abuse is more broad than we thought because now we're looking and seeing that it's not just a woman who's maybe the abused in this situation. You see, what I'm telling you is that I think we're drawn into some of these trials because we find that our ideals or sometimes even ourselves are represented or being staged on these trials for us to look at. We're not just looking at someone else's life or business. We start to recognize that we're seeing bits of our own life and business. And I think the biggest and most polarizing example of this we have in our modern setting is potentially what's looming and seeming to be, at least what was reported this week, the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I realize it's potentially occupational suicide for me to even mention or address or speak up at all on a topic like this, even as a pastor, which is it's unfortunate that it's, it's so very divisive. Some will leave their church this weekend because their pastor won't say a word about it, while others will leave their church because their pastor's too woke, because he didn't say enough about it, while there's still a third group of people <coughs> who will leave and just call their pastor a misogynist because he didn't speak the things that they wanted him to say, because they believed that what he was saying was the endorsement of forced pregnancy and the removal of human rights. And I think regardless of what your opinion is on this, you'd have to agree that every person recognizes right now the significance of this moment and this trial as it plays out. Now, here's what I'd ask then if we're going to say anything about it. I'm asking, please be gracious for a second and humble and willing just to hear what I'm about to say. And for some, it's infuriating that we're even bringing this up. And for others, I'd respectfully ask, don't get clap happy right now and don't cheer as we just briefly consider this. Because as your pastor, I'd agree this is a human rights issue. The rights of every woman, I think, should be fought for and protected by us. However, no one's rights to choose something should be exercised at the expense of another human's right to life. In the end, the gospel really is the reverse of what abortion's narrative is because the gospel says, I'll die so you can live. And abortion says, you'll die because I want to live. You'll die for me, whereas Jesus said, I'll die for you. There's a difference there. And my friends, I don't want to pretend that this is not complex. It's far more complex than simply being a political partisan issue, which is the easiest way to pit people against each other. This is not merely about women's rights. This is about a human right, human's right that includes right to life. And, and I would never ask you, and we as a church, in fact, in our bylaws, we're forbidden from asking you to take a political stand. This isn't a political issue. We're not asking you to go and picket or protest as a church. Instead, we'd ask that you jump in and that you'd serve people who are overwhelmed and marginalized, which I think is the unborn, but also the unprepared mother. So our church, we don't push a political agenda, but we will, however... Rather than supporting an anti-abortion political group, what we do is we support financially every month the local crisis pregnancy center because we want women who are in situations where they're overwhelmed and pregnant to recognize that there are resources and people, and we are a part of that people, and a part of those resources, who are willing to step up and step into what maybe is very, very overwhelming for them. And for you, if you're, if you're very passionate about this topic, I'd push on you, then consider what it would look like for you really to get involved in this situation might mean more than just ballots or voting or picketing or any of those things. It might mean foster care. It might mean jumping in and actually caring for individuals themselves. I, I realize, though, 
that for some of you, even just a brief moment mentioning this, it brings all sorts of a mess of deep-seated emotions because of your own history and choice when you faced a pregnancy in your past. And that's one of the reasons I ask people not to clap is because for some, just talking about this brings a mountain of shame for them where they feel all of a sudden like an outsider in a room like this where all of us or many could applaud or clap or, or agree and say, yes, we feel strongly about this. But please hear me, if you're someone who's here who's walked through this yourself personally and you're with us, can I just tell you, you belong here with us. You belong here with us because I, because we, because you all find the same love and forgiveness and grace we need in Jesus. You're not an outsider. You belong as much as any one of us. Now, here's the thing. You're probably starting to wonder, why in the world are we talking about all of this? Because of this, because sometimes a trial draws us in because we recognize that it exposes us to our own brokenness. We aren't just watching someone else's life or circumstances play out before us. We often find a piece of ourselves on the stand, and this is precisely what's happening in the trial of Jesus. We aren't just watching someone else's life or circumstances play out before us. We're finding a piece of ourselves in this story. We find that in the trial of Jesus, it exposes us to our own brokenness. And there's a few things from this large passage we just read about Jesus' trial that I just want to draw your attention to this morning. And I'll forewarn you that we will, in the middle section of this, we will get cerebral and historical, and we're doing that so that we can circle back around to addressing your heart. So don't let me lose you. But the first thing that I think is the main thing that this story teaches us and, and displays for us, it's the most obvious thing about the story, is this. That God's love is the reason for this dark and sinister moment. That the reason for the dark and sinister moment is the love of God for a broken world. I mean, make no mistake, human rebellion and sin is what necessitated, necessitated, I should say, this moment where Jesus is on trial. But it's God and his love and mercy that are the reason we find Jesus showing up for the trial. This isn't Jesus being bested or one-upped or defeated in any way. He's not a victim here looking for some villain. This is God, the eternal God who created the universe, stepping into his eternal plan. Jesus' response to the high priest's question about his identity that was just read to you emphasizes this, where they ask him, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the Mashiach, the promised one to come down from heaven to deliver us? Are you the son of the blessed? In verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Jesus does here is he places himself inside of the prophet Daniel's famous prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. That famous prophecy includes a vision that Daniel has of these vicious animals, one more fearsome than the former. All of them growing in influence and power, one after another. But then the attention of Daniel and of the reader turns to the Ancient of Days as heaven itself opens up. And what you see is God enthroned over all of them in absolute power, holding the ability, the authority to take away and end their reigns to take away all of their power and authority, to take away the power and dominion of any entity or empire. And then the attention of Daniel and you, if you're the reader in Daniel 7, all of a sudden turns towards someone who emerges who's called the Son of Man, 
who comes with heaven's authority to set up an eternal kingdom, who will come to put an end to humanity's broken pattern of one broken empire that that grows in power through suppression of the weak. One after another, he puts an end to the long line of all of these empires once and for all. This is how Daniel records it. Hopefully it'll pop up for you on the screen. Daniel chapter 7, beginning verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. The idea is he's coming with the authority of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... All nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is placing himself right in the middle of this moment where heaven's making a promise that heaven itself will once again reign over creation. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that this was pointing to. But who would have thought, who would have conceived that this is the way that the Son of Man would strip the world system of its power and authority? Or how could we have known that this is how he toppled the whole broken system and begin an eternal reign and kingdom of peace? Jesus is at the mercy of no one. He's not a pawn who's being manipulated. He's not a powerless person in your story who's being abused. He's making it clear that he's the one coming with heaven's authority and with heaven's commission to one day rule over all of creation, which means he would allow himself in this moment to be crushed rather than coming to crush all that were before him. There will be a final last judgment in the future where he will on judgment day Judge all of creation, all of humanity, but he will suffer and die on this day at the hands of men and in the place of men. It's Jesus himself who said, do you not think in this moment as he's standing before these people who have him on trial, he says, do you not think that I cannot pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? It's tens of thousands of angels. Matthew 26 records that moment for us. Jesus is not helpless He's not overpowered. He did this in obedience to the Father because of a love for you and for me. You see, every time I read through this story, I have to pause and reflect for a moment. I need to remind myself that this is happening because Jesus allowed this to happen. This is happening not because he's some victim being overpowered or outwitted. No, this is happening because God had had desired and, and had already decided that this would happen. He's not helpless. You don't find Jesus in any moment here looking for a way out. He's not looking for a way around this or off of this situation and this stand. He didn't try to sprint and run in Gethsemane when they came for him. He chose the cross. Yes, it was a hard choice. We just talked about him in Gethsemane where it's all looming. The shadow of the cross is cast over that garden. And he's saying, if there's any other way, please, Father, but not my will, yours be done. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah, Jesus, would be unrelenting, unwavering in his determination to persevere through the excruciating task set before him when Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 50. Because the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He set his face like flint. He was determined, focused. He was consumed. 
He wasn't overpowered in this moment, and he wasn't fooled or duped in getting to this moment. He's in this moment because of love. Love for his father and love for you. That's why he was taken. Because of his love for you. That, that's the beauty of this moment, as dark and heinous and awful as this scene is playing out before us. The beauty of it is that God is there willingly because of a love he has for you. And my friends, nothing you do will ever make him love you any more. And the amazing reality is that nothing you do will also either make him love you any less than he already does. Because his love is not built upon your merit. It's based upon his mercy and grace. You don't live under a pressure to earn the unrelenting love of God. You instead just embrace it. You see, sometimes a trial draws us in because we recognize that it exposes us to our own brokenness. And this is precisely what we find in the trial of Jesus. It's telling me, the trial tells me that I'm broken enough that Jesus had to die for me as my substitute. But it simultaneously is telling me that I was loved enough that Jesus was willing to die for me, that he was willing to do it, to die to rescue me. See, there's a few things here worth seeing. The first is, is the most important piece of this, is that God's love is the reason for this dark and sinister moment. But the other thing for you to see here, a second thing, is that humanity is exposed. Humanity is exposed in this dark and sinister moment. You see, every form of a human system was really represented that day at that trial and all rejected and condemned Jesus. Think about this. That did not reveal to us that Jesus was in any way, shape, or form guilty. What it reveals to us, what it proves to us, is just how broken our world is. Just how broken all of creation is. Let me explain it this way. If you take all four of the Gospels and piece together their narratives and their story, which is what we'll do, and this is the cerebral and historical part that I hope you'll hang with me through, but if you place them all together to get a full scope of what Jesus would endure in this, where he would go in this, it begins with him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The last couple of verses from last week finished with Jesus being arrested and a young man having his shirt grabbed. You might remember his robe grabbed and they tried to grab him and he ran off and it says that his robe was left behind and he sprinted away naked and you got in your home group this week and said what the heck was that all about and why did Trevor dodge that well it's believed throughout all of church history that that young man that's pictured there is actually Mark who wrote this and this is his his little moment of making a cameo appearance and he doesn't mention his name probably for several different reasons but historians tell us church historians do that the last supper actually took place many believe in the home of John Mark's family and that he as a teenage boy was probably then in the home. And when Judas left the home during the supper and Jesus and his friends shortly after left, Judas probably brought back his, his whole posse and gang who were there to arrest Jesus, banging on the door and finding Jesus is no longer there. John Mark jumps up out of bed, quickly throws a robe around his body and follows them to the place that Judas will lead them, which is the place that your scriptures tell you Jesus often withdrew to pray. Gethsemane was that place. And so John Mark was present in that moment, probably watching from a distance. And as the disciples start to run, as Jesus is arrested in that moment, they remember reach out and grab hold of him as well. And the rest is history. Jesus in the story, he's sold off for the price of a common slave and he'd now be hauled off as if he's a prisoner or a criminal. And in John's gospel, it tells you that he was taken first to a priest, the high priest whose name was Annas. 
And we've met this character before when we talked about the temple and the corrupt financial system that existed inside of the temple. Remember, historians tell us from the time of Christ that business in the temple was very lucrative and was being developed by the former high priest. His name is Annas, the first guy that Jesus will stand before in the middle of the night to go on trial. Annas resigned from his position and title to further develop the business of buying and selling sacrifices because there was money to be made on every lamb and dove, on every offering that would be given there in the temple. And one of the ways they made money on this is that they said that there was a temple currency because they wouldn't take the filthy money of the the, the rest of the people. You'd have to pay to exchange your coins for their temple coins and pay a tax on that. And then using those coins, they could inflate the prices Uh, as much as they wanted to buy those sacrifices. And so there was great money to be made and it was made by this man. Jesus goes in, flips over the tables, ends the whole system, calls it out as broken and corrupt, which it was. And in the end, it's no surprise to us that then it's Annas who seems to bankroll the arrest of Jesus and it's Annas who Jesus first stands before. It's in the presence of Annas that Jesus will receive his first blow of the evening where someone will strike him in front of the high priest. Annas will then hand off Jesus to his son-in-law, whose name is Caiaphas, who's now the new high priest in Israel. That's the second place Jesus goes as he's dragged from the garden. First to Annas, now to Caiaphas. He arrives at Caiaphas' house and it becomes crystal clear just how set up the fiasco was because the Gospels tells us when he arrives, a whole slew of religious leaders are already present and waiting for Jesus' arrival. These were the men who were entrusted to care for God's people, entrusted to oversee the health and well-being of the people of God, to be sure that the people never lost sight of their God and his promise to one day rescue them. And these are the people dragging Jesus into their presence. There's a rooster in our story that, that begins to crow there at this guy Caiaphas' house, because remember Jesus had told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Think of this imagery, the rooster crowing three different times. It's telling you by dawn, before dawn, it's still the middle of the night is what it's telling you, which is one of the gospel writers' ways of communicating to you that this was a hidden gathering that was illegal. It should have been done in the temple in the view of the public eye. The fact that it took place at night was also, by Jewish law, illegal. The fact that they could not get two coinciding witnesses to have their stories corroborate against Jesus was also illegal, that they couldn't find that and yet still held a trial. The fact that they would pronounce judgment on the spot was, you guessed it, illegal by Jewish law because you had to sleep on a judgment that would be passed that was severe on an individual to slow people down from having their temperament boil over and their anger be expressed on any one person. Now, thanks to historical accounts and then also thanks to the diligent and patient work of archaeologists, if you go to Israel today, you can visit Caiaphas' house. In fact, it's a bit confusing because when you see it, it's just south of the old city of Jerusalem, just uh, not far at all from the Temple Mount itself, but you'll see a distant church with a black cross coming up into the sky, and on top of it is a gold rooster that's marking the space. It's a church that was built there on top of the ruins of a 4th century monastery that was built there. This Byzantine monastery has markings inside of it that go back, they say, to as early as 330 AD, where people went there to find the ruins of the house of Caiaphas, and what they found was a dungeon that was underneath the house, a pit that was dug literally into the bedrock. 
There are places where you can clearly see when you go there where people would have their arms tied into place so that they could be whipped and beaten and be defenseless. There's a large pit in the middle that someone would be lowered down by rope after being tied up. They'd be lowered down in that pit to sit in isolation and wait. We know with confidence that while Jesus is here at Caiaphas' house, he's mocked, he's spit on, he's struck with an open hand, a bag is placed over his head, and again and again they pummel him with blows, mocking him, saying, prophesy who hits you. With Jesus not able to see where the blow is coming from, he can't even brace for the blow. He's sucker punched again and again and again. And many believe Jesus also would have been lowered down into this pit to tremble in pain and isolation as the world that he loved and came to rescue was turning their backs on him, even rejecting and beating and killing him. That pit is now referred to as the sacred pit because it's the pit that they believe that Jesus spent part of this night alone in. I've been reading a book, uh, it began this last weekend, called What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. It's written by a medical doctor who lectured and then even led a seminary course through the physical suffering of Jesus. It's, it's his writings viewed through the eyes of a physician, all that Jesus endured. And the author, he points out that there's a really specific word that Luke, who was a physician and a, a gospel writer, Luke uses this specific word to describe what Jesus endured at Caiaphas' house at the hands of the religious leaders and their guards. It's the root word der from Greek to Latin to English. It's the root word where we get our idea in medicine of dermatology. That Luke uses a word to express and explain that they did something to Jesus' skin, not just to brutally beat him or to slap him with an open hand, but also to cut his skin open to cause him to bleed. He's not just emerging from this scene battered and bruised, but Luke is wanting us to know that he's bleeding also. The word is used other places in history to speak of when someone was flayed with a knife. It's also used in other places to describe someone who was whipped with a, a sharp whip or blade a, a, again and again across their skin, lacerating them and leaving their skin sliced apart. It's also used, though, in another way that, that maybe aligns with what prophecy had said Jesus would endure. And that's that the prophet had foretold that Jesus would have even his beard removed, which was a way to publicly shame a Jewish man. And it's very possible that this is the place and this is the time where in addition to all the other things that they do to him, they begin to rip his beard off of his own face. Quoting from this book, he said, the very people who are supposed to protect, interpret, and promote the law and teaching of God were the very ones allowing God now to be tortured. If you visit Caiaphas' house and you go down to that pit today, if you go all the way down inside the sacred pit, what you find there is a lectern with a single light that points at it. And, and on that lectern, written in several different languages, is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 says, O Lord God of my salvation, I've cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you've afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. Think about this. 
You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and cannot get out. You know, for some of you, you might have come here going, man, the isolation that I'm feeling, no one understands. My friend, Jesus understands. Jesus does. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus will be taken from Caiaphas' house, having endured so much. As dawn was arriving, he'd be dragged before the great Sanhedrin, which is the 70 religious leaders who oversaw the governance of the Jewish religious system, and they held the unique authority in Jewish culture to be both judge and jury. And so at dawn, he's dragged into their public hearing where they pronounce him guilty of blasphemy, and his sentence for it, they pronounce, is death, it's capital punishment. This is the end for him. But the Jews under Roman occupation have had that right stripped from them. They no longer can carry out a death sentence. So now they have to convince the Roman government itself to pronounce Jesus worthy of death, a death by crucifixion. So first thing in the morning is the city is just coming back to life. You're picturing dawn breaking, the, the, the sun beginning to lift over the horizon, over the east side, behind the Mount of Olives. It's just peeking over as people are emerging from their sleep. Jesus is dragged, bruised, battered, and bleeding to a fortress that overlooked the Temple Mount itself. It's where Pilate was staying during the Passover feast and the charges the religious leaders bring against Jesus all of a sudden shift in the gospel narrative because the Roman government doesn't care that someone's blaspheming the Jewish God. Why do they care? No, now they bring the accusation of insurrection. In Luke 23, it says it this way in verse two, they began to state their case. This man, they said, has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he's the Messiah, that he's their king. Luke tells us that Pilate wants nothing to do with him and passes him off to Herod, who's also in the city for Passover. In fact, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, I had a dream, a vision about this man, Jesus. Don't deal with him. Get rid of him. And because Jesus technically was from the region of Galilee, which is Herod's jurisdiction, Pilate gladly hands him off. And your Bible tells you in Luke's gospel that Herod is so excited to have an audience with Jesus, the one that he's heard of as the, the miracle worker. And it says that that's what he desires is to speak to him and see a miracle, but Jesus doesn't perform for him, nor does he speak to him. And so Herod humiliates him further and sends him back to Jesus after he and his soldiers had some fun with him. They send him back with a royal robe on his back, fit for a king. Look at your king, your weak king, he said. Pilate now, as the story wraps up, he succumbs to the chance of the crowd and chooses to give Jesus over to their will. You see, if Jesus is going to die, they have to convince Pilate that he's deserving of death or they need to pressure him enough publicly that he'll just cave under pressure. And in that moment, as Jesus is before Pilate, he's standing there alone. No one stood beside him. He doesn't have a single ally or supporter or friend. Everyone is counted now as being against him. The religious leaders were told that they were jealous of his popularity, jealous that others loved him and followed him. It's Judas who had turned against him. Seemingly, he had started to see that Jesus wasn't going to make his hopes and dreams come true, and so he was out on him too. Even the disciples, the rest of the guys, had abandoned him, terrified and worried for their own safety, leaving with more question, questions than answers in that moment. And now Jesus stands before the Romans, before Pontius Pilate himself, a man who will feel the pressure of the religious leaders, who will hear the shouts of the crowds, 
crucify, crucify, a man who will appear to hold the fate and future of Jesus in his hands. In fact, Pilate says it this way in John 19. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know I have power to crucify you or power to release you? And Jesus responded and said, you could have no power at all against me unless it's been given to you from above. John gives the most detail about Pilate's interaction with Jesus, where in the end, Pilate declares, I've found no fault in this man. He's done nothing. But after failing to pass Jesus off, the buck stops with him and he decides, I'll flog him. And then maybe that will elicit enough sympathy from the crowd so that I can release him, but the crowd would not relent. Next time we're together, we'll talk about that moment where they will mock him and treat him as a king. But it becomes very clear in our story that what Pilate is set on, his priority was not necessarily a fair trial for Jesus. His priority was to prevent a riot from the crowd. Historians give us all the backstory we need to tell us he's in big trouble already with Caesar, with two riots under his time as a leader and as a governor over that region, and that this was his last chance or he would be removed. And typically that did not end well for government powers to be removed in ancient times. They'd typically be murdered or be expected to commit suicide. So Pilate's afraid if I make these Jews angry, He's afraid to stand up for what's right because he's afraid of what people might do and how that might affect his future and his status. And in the end, he will lack the courage to stand for what he knew was right because it would cost him too much. And all the while, Jesus in the Gospels is silent. He tells us that Pilate again and again is trying to dialogue with him to hear his defense, but Jesus is silent. While Jesus is brutally whipped and tortured even, it says that Jesus is silent. Some 800 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah had written that the Messiah would come to give his life as a ransom for many, yes, but it also said that he'd be led as a lamb to the slaughter and that he would not open his mouth, that he'd willingly go without a fight and without a defense because there was no fault in him. What was he to defend? He could have thrown me under the bus. He could have said, I'm here because of them. I'm here because of that guy, because of Trevor. I'm here because of these things that he's done. That's why all of human history is led and crescendoed into this terrible, tragic moment. But he offers up not a word. And so Pilate makes this suggestion. There's this historical thing, this, this uh, cultural thing called a Pascal pardon, where every year at the feast, they would release one who is guilty of crimes as a part of the picture of Passover, where the judgment that was deserved would be removed from that person and they would be allowed to go free. And so he, he says to them, this is what you typically do. How about if I do this? I could release instead Barabbas, this man who's guilty of, of murder, who's deserving of death. And in, in his place, Jesus could suffer. And in the end, that is what the crowd had chosen. It's Augustine, the great early church father of old, who said, said it this way. He says, God had one son on earth without sin, but he never had one without suffering. Not even Jesus would be spared from the pain that's become a part of the human existence and story. In fact, Jesus would embrace it in order to bring an end to it for the rest of humanity's story. Man, if you suffer, at least when I do, there are times when I, the, the best explanation I have just falls so far short and I still feel like God's not off the hook for my suffering. It's in those moments I have to remember that God placed himself on the, on the hook, though, for human suffering. 
that Jesus bore the full weight and brunt of suffering in order to end all suffering once and for all, to make a way for the world to be made right, to be redeemed and restored one day, to make a way for you and I to be with him where the world is right again, where tears are wiped away. The only way that that happens is that Jesus will bear the full brunt of suffering so that he can secure a place for us in our future separate from evil and suffering. Author Elizabeth Elliot, who's the widow of a Christian missionary who was martyred in Ecuador, she said this. She said, our vision is so limited we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protecting from suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily protect us not from anything that might make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. See, sometimes a trial draws us in because we recognize that it's exposing us even to our own brokenness. We're not just watching someone else's life or circumstances play out before us. We find a piece of ourselves that it's being represented there on the stand, and that's precisely what's happening with Jesus on trial in this moment. It's not just looking at his circumstances. It's not just looking from the outside. It's finding a piece of ourselves represented that we're exposed to our own brokenness in this morning. Ironically, the trial of Jesus really puts all of humanity on trial. And by condemning Jesus, humanity is condemning itself. Every group and uh, grouping of society and authority was involved. No one was exempt from hearing the trial of Jesus and condemning him there. It's, it's the religious moralism movement. It's the religious leaders who are there, who, who their, their movement still is represented today, that, that your superiority is, is felt and based on and built on arrogance through your good deeds, that you feel that you're better than other people. That movement, that thinking still hates Jesus because the gospel is so very offensive to someone who works so hard to make themselves righteous. Today still, it's religious materialism where what you can amass is your identity and God. It's pictured in Annas in that moment. It's a cultural movement we see, especially in the Western Hemisphere. That movement still hates Jesus and condemns him because he says that we should live generously. And he said, blessed are the poor. And we say, no, 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 Jesus. Blessed, the blessing of God only resides on the rich and the comfortable. Listen, every visible broken form of government was present there where where all of a sudden power is gained while people are suppressed. And those movements still hate Jesus because he says, blessed are the meek. Those who place their power to the side and care with gentleness for people. It's religious nationalism, where my my faith and my political push for power are so intertwined and scrambled together that they can no longer be separated like you find in Herod. That movement still hates Jesus because they're offended that to take Jesus seriously means for me to love my enemy rather than to be fanatical and die on the wrong hill and for the wrong cause. It's even the insider named Judas and and each one who followed him that day that rejected and bailed on him because he no longer promised or provided what they thought they signed up for. And every person with a disappointment, every person who suffered and been shocked by it, has in their own moments still today condemned Jesus. Jesus didn't fit in any form of a human system, so they all, we all turned on him and rejected him. 
My friends, I know I've said this before, but it's worth stating again, that Jesus' death, it provides more than just a payment. It's a cosmic demonstration. That's what Romans 5, 8 says. It says that he demonstrated something when he died. He demonstrated at least two things. The first of which is that he, he demonstrated that this sinful fallen world system was so very broken and corrupt. Think about how broken it is. It's the only perfect person to ever grace the earth with his presence. And the very people who are entrusted with the job of upholding justice are the ones condemning him to die. The cross took us to this bleak moment in time that shows us with clarity just how deeply sin has marred God's good creation. In condemning Jesus in this moment, the world's condemning itself. The world's demonstrating just how backward and broken it is. The world is more than just exposed this day, though. Thankfully, the world is being defeated. Daniel's image was right. Of all of these government superpowers, all of them losing their power to the one called the Son of Man who would not beat them at their own game, would flip instead the the game on its head. For he would not take power by suppressing others, but he would take a position of power by loving even his enemies. It didn't just demonstrate the sinful, broken world system that we're stuck in. It also demonstrated that Jesus' love is incomparable. It demonstrated just the amazing, incomparable nature of the love of God. The cross didn't just show me that the world and that I am broken. It simultaneously shows me just how good and loving, compassionate and gracious Jesus is. God's love is the reason for this dark and sinister moment that really is as tragic and low as it is. It is the pinnacle of his expression of love for humanity. It's the reason for the moment. Humanity is exposed in this moment. Every, every human being, every human form of system, all is represented here. All has condemned Jesus to die. All have rejected him. This did not reveal that Jesus was in some way guilty. What it did instead is it proved and exposed that all of us are guilty. But here's the last thing. It's that God's grace is seen. God's grace is seen in this dark and sinister moment. It's such a crazy thing to consider and to remember that it was just days before this when Jesus would enter the city on Palm Sunday and people would chant and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that same crowd finds themselves now cheering and chanting, crucify, crucify, away with him. He's not fit to live. For me, I'm shocked by that turn of events, but for Jesus, he wasn't. God knew the crowd would turn so quickly, just as he knew that all of creation would turn against him first in the garden itself. Revelation 13.8 mentions that before the foundations of the world were laid, the lamb was slain. In the mind of God, he knew what we would do as humanity, and he knew what it would cost him and what he would have to do, and he still moved forward with creation. In our story, Peter becomes the reminder and just a simple expression of the kind of grace that Jesus has. Jesus knew that Peter himself would deny and depart from him. He even gave Peter the play-by-play of how it would all play out. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows three times. When it played out, Peter himself seems stunned, but Jesus is not. Let's finish real quick just talking about Peter for a moment, and we'll save Barabbas for the next time we're together. There in the courtyard of Caiaphas' home, remember where you can still go and see the ruins, 
You find Jesus as, be, as he's being publicly mocked and beaten. Before he'd be lowered, maybe even down into that pit of isolation, Jesus would, would begin to feel the sting of isolation because Peter and others would depart and leave. But Peter would then also, while Jesus is experiencing the sting of isolation, he'd experience the gift of Jesus' gracious love. In Luke 22, it says it this way, beginning in verse 60, but Peter, this is the third time he denies him, said, man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is receiving right now blows. He's being tortured at the hands of these self-righteous religious leaders and their cronies. Jesus is, is being brutally beaten and in the moment when Peter denies him a third time as he looks up and the, the rooster crows, Jesus' attention turns Peter's direction. My friends, remember that Jesus didn't just know about this moment. He cautioned Peter regarding it. And I think he graciously prepared Peter for it because he washed Peter's feet. I wonder how Peter would describe the look that Jesus gave him in that moment. When they locked eyes for that brief second, I'm sure he described Jesus as someone who was already bruised and beaten, maybe even disfigured from them taking out his beard. But would he describe the look that Jesus gave him as being angry? Was his look utter disappointment? Or was the look in his eyes and what Peter saw, love and compassion, was the compassion that Jesus had in his heart for Peter, was it apparent on his very expression on his face? Peter ran off in that moment, weeping, broken over his sin. And I can't help but wonder, is that what it's going to take me to take my sin seriously is to see Jesus face to face? Is that what it's going to take you maybe to take your sin seriously is to see Jesus face to face? Or, please hear me, or is it going to take me seeing Jesus face to face for me to begin to understand and grasp and experience the beautiful depths of his grace? Because as Peter ran off weeping and broken over his sin, as he runs off, when he finally looks down, overcome with grief, with, with deep sorrow and disappointment with himself, when Peter looked down, what he saw was clean feet. I mean, just hours before Jesus and his friends had gathered and John 13 tells the story that before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that we, he should depart from this world to his father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them all the way to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to go back to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you really washing my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you'll know soon after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet and is completely clean, and you are clean. I picture Peter in that moment, broken and weeping, running from the fireside that we found him at when he denied Jesus, running from the scene where Jesus is being mocked and beaten. He's running from the torches and the cheers, the ridicule and the sound of it all. And when he's gone far enough in the dark as the the light is just beginning to dawn while the city is still quiet, Peter's found himself in a secluded place to sit for a moment, to weep and to mourn. And when his head sunk down into his hands, How could I? How could I? I failed. How could I? I, How could I? He told me I would. How could I? I promised I wouldn't. It's over. But when he looked down, he saw that his feet were cleansed. I think this is where his story and trajectory shifts from Judas where Judas felt overcome with remorse and he went and took his own life. But Peter, I believe, heard the words of Jesus ringing true in his ears. What I'm doing, you don't understand right now, but you'll know soon after this. He who's washed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean. And you, Peter, I've made clean. Jesus wouldn't just warn Peter about the moment that was coming. He prepared Peter for it. And later, after Jesus would rise from the dead, heaven itself would speak to the women at the tomb and say, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's alive. They single out Peter specifically who needed to hear it. And then publicly, after rising from the dead, Jesus will sit with Peter on a shore and restore Peter, asking him three different times, do you love me? And three times then recommissioning him, then go and feed my sheep. That moment too will break Peter's heart, but only for a moment because Jesus in his grace restores him three times over. Scottish preacher Alistair Begg, he said it this way. He says, with the Lord Jesus, failure is never final nor fatal. My friends, I like to think of it this way, that Jesus treats failures as if they've never failed. God's love is the reason for this dark and sinister moment. Humanity, you have to see, is exposed inside the dark and sinister moment, but God's grace is seen still in the dark and sinister moment. And there is grace for every failure in Jesus' loving arms. Grace for every lie and broken promise. For every lustful thought and rebellious moment. For every outburst and envious motivation. For every faithless decision or every abortion. For every person, there's grace to be found and experienced in Jesus. I was just telling someone this week, I can feel like a broken record because what I want to do every week is remind you of what we find in Jesus. And that's because I believe what it produces in us is humility and simultaneously confidence. See, our whole life we live under so much pressure thinking that we have to earn our way. Really, for all of us, our security and significance is wrapped up in what we do and someone else recognizing it. That's incredible pressure we live under. And when we fail under that pressure, sure, we're humbled, but we lack any confidence. 
When we succeed under that pressure, oh boy, we're confident, but we lack any humility. But the gospel produces both those things and so settles our soul. And that the byproduct of the gospel does produce humility in me because the gospel tells me that because of my brokenness, it necessitated, it it made it clear that Jesus had to die. He had to go to a cross, but it also leaves me as a person so very confident because I'm loved and valued enough that God was willing to do it for me. And what he did, he did in totality. My security and significance is not something any longer I have to earn. My security and significance is now found in someone I am known by, someone that I know, someone whose name is Jesus, who on a cross will cry out soon, it is finished. Everything that was required for me to be made right with God was paid for by Jesus. I now live under the umbrella of his love and grace, even in the ugliest, the darkest, the most sinister of moments. My friends, it's Jesus you need. It's Jesus we need every single day, Jesus. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.